I'll turn with me once again this morning, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. The last couple of weeks we've been spending our time in this chapter of John's Gospel. And as we have, we've witnessed this back and forth conversation between Jesus and the Jews at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, during this time at the beginning of John 8, Jesus declared to them that he is the light of the world. And immediately they questioned the validity of his words. And two weeks ago, we looked at how in that first part of the conversation, Jesus communicated that that we can know Christ or they can know God through Jesus, through himself. Then last week, we looked at how true freedom, true freedom from slavery to sin is found only in Jesus. That all those who are in Christ are free from the power of sin in their lives. They are free from the eternal punishment for their sin because Jesus took it upon himself on the cross and one day will be free from the presence of sin. And so, as those who have been set free, we should act like we are free, and that's what we talked about last week. So this week, as we return to our narrative, though, we come to the climax of this conversation. And I hope you've been able to sense with me, as we've been going through this, that the tension between Jesus and those he's interacting with is building. And as they progress through this conversation, they are challenging Jesus more and more. And that anger and hostility that they have towards Christ is going to reach its apex by the end of this narrative. By the end of our time this morning, they're going to pick up stones and they're going to seek to physically kill Jesus. That is where we are headed and It is all centered around the question this morning of their spiritual paternity, or in other words, who is the identity of their spiritual father? Now, anybody who has ever had little children or has little children and spent time around them and their parents will notice, right, that little kids in general want to be like their parents. Now, recently I was spending time with a couple with a young son and This young son who loves his dad, he he wants to be like him. And one of the ways this typically comes out is that children will mimic things that their parents do. And for whatever reason, for this son, he has this little plastic lawnmower and he loves to mow the yard with his dad. And it is precious and it is sweet Now, for for your children and for other children, it may be something different. That's what it was or is for this son. And this desire, though, to be like our parents starts at an early age and oftentimes continues throughout our lives. And we don't always end up exactly like our parents or doing the exact same thing they do, but we often imitate our parents whether we realize it or not. Now, one of the joys of being married is you get to experience the little idiosyncrasies of your spouse. Well, please pray for my wife because I have a lot of them. And after my wife got to know me, she wondered sometimes, why did I use, say certain things or use certain phrases or have specific mannerisms or way of thinking or way of processing information? Well, then she met my parents and she didn't have to wonder anymore. 
Of course, I didn't see it. I didn't see it until my wife lovingly pointed out all the ways that I was just like my parents. It happened. I didn't even mean it to. I didn't even know that it had. You know, now sometimes I'll say something or do something, and I'll think, Dad, where did you come from? Right? Now, I say this in jest, but I think we can all relate. We see it in our kids or our grandkids or children we spend time with. The teens that we talk to and we think, wow, they sound just like their parents. We all do this, whether we realize it or not. And when we are doing this, what we are actually proclaiming to those around us, we are saying who our parents are. Our our actions reveal who our father is. Well, Jesus is going to communicate the same truth this morning. He's going to communicate to this crowd something that we know to be true in a physical sense, yet he's going to speak of it in a spiritual sense. And so the big idea, or the main idea this morning, is that our actions reveal our Father. Right? Our actions reveal our Father. <clears throat> well, as we work through the text, I'm going to take it one interaction at a time. There's a consistent back and forth from, we're starting in verse 37. And we're going to make our way all the way down to verse 59 this morning. And in each interaction, we're going to develop this picture of what it looks like for someone to act like their spiritual father. We're going to start with the children of God. And we're going to see from the outset that the first thing is that children of God do the works of Abraham. That's the point Jesus is going to make. The children of God do the works of Abraham. Excuse me. So I'm going to read, starting in verse 37, and I'm going to read down through the first part of verse 41. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. So just as a quick reminder of where we left off last week, Jesus just told them that those who live in a lifestyle of sin are slaves to sin. They are slaves and can do nothing to free themselves from their bondage. Only the unique Son of God can set someone free. And if the Son sets you free, then you will be truly free. And if you're truly free, you'll share in the inheritance of the Son, and you'll be members of the household. And this was in response to the claims of the Jews that they were descendants of Abraham. And since they're descendants of Abraham, they've never been spiritually enslaved to anyone. They believe that their spiritual lineage was Abraham, and that in that alone, they had spiritual freedom. So this, that is the argument that the Jews were making. And so Jesus, at the end in verses 37 and 38, he makes this implication to them. He he acknowledges, yes, you are in fact physical descendants of Abraham. They are Jews who come physically from that line, yet they want to kill him. They want to kill Jesus because of his word or the totality of his message, which finds no place in them. They do not believe what Jesus has been claiming about himself. They do not believe that he is the I am. And evidence of that unbelief is their open 
hostility towards Jesus. And so this sets the stage then for the rest of the conversation because Jesus tells them he speaks what he has seen from his father and they do what they have seen from their father. So he doesn't come out directly and say it at this point. He will later. But he's implying you and I do not have the same father. He said Jesus has one father and they have a different one. Now, the crowds are understanding what he's implying, and we can tell by the response in verse 39. They say that, well, no, Abraham is, in fact, our father. Abraham is our father. They know that Jesus is speaking in a spiritual sense here, because it would make no sense for Jesus to imply they weren't physically descendants of Abraham. In fact, Jesus had already said, yes, you are descendants of Abraham. So he has to be speaking in some other way, and the only other way is in a spiritual sense. And the Jews say, we're not just physical descendants of Abraham. Morally, ethically, spiritually, we're descendants of Abraham as well. And so Jesus challenges that. And Jesus says to them, if you were really spiritually children of Abraham, then you would mimic your father. If they were really ethically, morally, spiritually in line with Abraham, they would do the same kinds of things, the same kinds of works that Abraham did. Well, naturally, that should prompt a question in your mind. Well, what works did Abraham do? What is he talking about here? Well, Jesus, in addressing this issue, he comes at it from the negative side. I mean, he defines the works of Abraham, what Abraham did by what he did not do. They want to kill Jesus, someone from God who has told them the truth. Abraham didn't do that. Well, to help us out here, I think there is a progression in this conversation that helps us positively understand what Christ means when he's talking about the works of Abraham. Well, back in verse 24, Jesus told them, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And then he told him in verse 37, we just read, I know your offspring are Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And in verses 39 through 40, he said, if you are Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. And By the time we get down to verse 47, Jesus is going to say, whoever is of God hears the words of God. So I hope you hear a pattern there. Jesus keeps coming back to this idea of response to truth from God. But how is this a work? When John 6, we have this interesting interaction between Jesus and the crowds back in John 6. This is after he's fed the 5,000 and... It's the next day, and the crowds are seeking him because they want breakfast. And in John chapter 6, verse 25 through 29, we read, When they found him, Jesus, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, What must we do? 
to be doing the works of God. And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So here in in our passage, Jesus is connecting faith in himself as a work of God inside a person. This is the work of salvation in a person's heart. Back in Genesis 15, it says, Abraham believed the words of God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And in addition, the evidence of this work of salvation in Abraham's life was his obedience to God's commands and righteous requirements. Abraham was willing to obey God. And the author of Hebrews picks up on this. You know, in this famous chapter 11, this, this hall of faith that we have, there's several places where it focuses on Abraham. And, and in Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10, we have, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. In verse 9, by faith, he went to the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then in verse 17, he says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The fact that the Jews want to kill Jesus is outward evidence of their lack of faith and thus lack of spiritual heritage with Abraham. Since the Jews do not believe his words, which are the words of God, as Abraham did, they do not obey God. This is actually the opposite of what Abraham did. So put very simply, Abraham heard the words of God, believed in the words of God, and then obeyed the words of God. These Jews did not. And the supreme evidence that these Jews did not is that they want to kill Jesus, who was sent by God and speaking the truth to them. They don't have the same father. Those who are children of God do the works of Abraham. Those who are children of God hear the words of God, believe in the words of God, and then obey the words of God. Every child of God obeys him. I'm not saying they do so perfectly because I know that I do not. But there is obedience. And as we go through the years of our lives, through the journey in the pilgrimage of this life, if we are God's children, then we will grow in obedience to him. We will listen to his words. We will put our faith in his words, and we will grow in obedience to them. And if we do not, then we should not feel secure that God is our father. Jesus is is laying down a hard truth here. So I want you to hear that this is coming from Christ. This This isn't there, and these are the words of Christ. He is saying, either God is your father or he is not. There's no in-between. There's no part-time child in the household of God. You either are or you're not. God is your father or someone else is. And in these verses we've looked at so far, Jesus doesn't say who the other option is yet. 
but he will make that clear in a few verses. So first of all, first of all then, what does it look like for a child of God to mimic their father? Well, children of God do the works of Abraham. They listen to, they believe in, and they obey God's words. Well, the Jews, after hearing this, how do they respond to Jesus? Jesus is telling them, Abraham is not your father. You say Abraham's your father, Abraham's not your father. So how do they respond? So we're going to start in the second part of verse 41 and read through verse 42. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I come from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Well, back in the Old Testament, as God is telling Moses what to say to Pharaoh, he instructs him in Exodus chapter 4, he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Jeremiah 31.9, he says, I am the fa- a father to Israel. And in Deuteronomy 14, he says, You are the sons of the Lord your God. And so the, the people, the crowd, the Jews, they, they knew this. They knew that that's how uh, the words in, in their scripture, well, they say, well, if Jesus won't allow that Abraham is our father, surely, surely he will do not deny us that God is our father. He made it clear in the Old Testament that God is the father of Israel. So they call then upon this ultimate spiritual heritage. And they say, we are not spiritually illegitimate children. God himself is our father. And in response, Jesus lays out another proof or another evidence that's of someone who has God as their father. Jesus tells them in verse 42, children of God love Jesus. Children of God love Jesus. They love Jesus, Jesus who does not seek his own glory, but was sent by the Father and seeks the Father's glory. He is sent from God. He speaks the truth of God. So those that are truly God's children will love him. What does it mean to love Jesus? To love Jesus is to have pleasure in him, to strive after him. Him. To to love Jesus is to seek Him for His own sake. Not so we can get something from Him, but to seek Him because He is Jesus. Deuteronomy 6 5, God tells the Israelites, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is this deep, heartfelt affection for God. It is an affection for God that consumes all of our being. One reference I read this last week, they put it this way, so I'll quote them. To love God is to exist for him as a slave for his Lord. It is to listen faithfully and obediently to his orders, to place oneself under his lordship, to value above all else the realization of this lordship, 
It also means, however, to base one's whole being on God, to cling to him with unreserved confidence, to leave with him all care or final responsibility, to live by his hand. It is to hate and despise all that does not serve God, nor come from him to break with all other ties, to cut away all that hinders, to snap all bonds except that which binds to God alone. I think this is such an important point to make because I, I think we, we oftentimes focus solely on the outward expression of this love for Jesus. And there will be, there will be an outward expression of this love for Christ, but, but also it is a heartfelt, deep affection for Jesus. This, this being so consumed by God that we live and exist just for him, not because we have to, not because we feel obligated to, but because we want to. This is the slave in the Old Testament that once he actually is able to go free, he decides to stay a slave forever with his master because he loves his master. We see this in Exodus 21, verse 5 through 6, as he's giving these, these laws or these rules about slaves. He says, but if the slave, and this is after he reaches the point where he could go free, he says, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God. And he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. And that, that word used for love, when he talks about, I love my master, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the same word that's used in our passage this morning, to love Jesus. This is what it looks like to love Christ. And this heartfelt deep affection for God will express itself in one particular way. It will. It will express itself in obedience to him. But as we understand what it means to love Christ, how could it be anything less? If we love Jesus, if we live our lives for his glory, for his name's sake, willingly as a slave of Christ, desirous for our master only because he is God himself, we can only show our love by obedience to him. So Jesus says later in John 14, 21, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. A passage that, that Steve read this morning but before the offering in 1 John 5, verse 1 through 3. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Right? And he keeps going back to, we love God and obey his commandments. We keep his commandments. Those who love Christ obey him, but it's out of this well, this deep well of heart affection for him. It's being overwhelmed by his very person so that there is no other conceivable response but then to obey him. He alone has the words of life, who else would we obey? Who else would we serve? Who else would we lovingly, willingly follow? 
this morning, then I ask you, do you love Jesus? Do you love Christ? So far, Jesus has described character traits of those who are children of God. Children of God do the works of Abraham. Children of God love Jesus. So in these next verses, though, he's going to shift gears. And and in verses 43 through 47, he's going to tell them explicitly who their father is and how they're imitating their true father. So I'm going to read verses 43 through 47. He says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which... Sorry. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Wow. Jesus doesn't pull any punches here. You can imagine. Imagine the scene with me. Jesus tells him, Abraham's not your father. Then he tells him, God is not your your father. And then he says, not only is Abraham not your father and God not your father, your father is actually Satan. And why does he say that their father is Satan? How are they acting like Satan? Or what are the character traits of Satan that they are mimicking? Well, first, Jesus says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. And then second, he says that Satan does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So children of Satan are liars and murderers. Children of Satan, very clearly that's what he's saying. Children of Satan are liars and murderers. And this goes back to the opening pages of Scripture. After God created Adam and Eve, right? he told them in Genesis 2 that that they could eat of any tree of the garden, any tree of the garden they wanted in the Garden of Eden except for one. Now is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But if they were to eat of that tree in the very day that they ate it, they would surely die. And so in Genesis 3, who comes to Eve? The serpent, Satan. And he comes to Eve and he tempts her. And what does he do in order to tempt her? He lies. He lies to to Eve by distorting and twisting what God had actually commanded them. And when he lies, what Jesus is saying, when he lies, he is speaking out of his own character. He is the father of lies. He's actually the first one that we see lying in the Bible, right? Before this moment in the garden, before Satan shows up on the scene, there was no sinful behavior. Satan shows up after sinning against God in heaven, and he goes and he lies. The first thing we see him doing is lying to God's creation. He lies to Adam and Eve about God. And what is the result of these lies? It's death. Eve gives in to the lies of Satan, 
to these temptations, and she chooses to disobey God. She turns to Adam, who is with her, and he sins as well. And what occurs immediately? Not physical death. They didn't physically die right in that moment, but they did die a spiritual death. They are immediately separated from God relationally. relationally. And in inciting Eve to sin, Satan then becomes the murderer of all mankind. For all of mankind and all of creation in that moment are plunged into sin. Satan is a liar and a murderer. He has been from the beginning and he continues to be to this day. So what Jesus is telling these Jews are that you are liars and murderers in your heart. And it won't just stay there because ultimately... This is going to result in the actual murder of Christ. But notice it starts with open hostility toward God. They're openly hostile towards Christ, which means they're openly hostile towards the Father. They're actually acting like their true spiritual father, which is Satan. Their actions are revealing who their father is. They are liars and they are murderers. But they're not only that, they also cannot believe the truth. Children of Satan also cannot believe the truth. When you read verse 45 and I think about it, meditate on what it's saying, it's actually very shocking. I think it's hard to read, it's hard to digest, it's hard to meditate upon. And why do I say that? Because if we read verse 45, it says, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Why is that hard? Because it's not that unbelievers do not want to hear the truth, or they hear the truth and they're contemplating it, or they're seeking the truth and one day they may find it. This verse actually says that it's not just that they do not want to believe the words of Jesus. It's actually they do not believe the words of Jesus because it is the truth. The fact that the words of Christ are the truth of God is the reason they cannot believe it. One commentary I read put it this way. They said the children of the devil will be so characterized by lies, they will not be able to accept the truth precisely because it is the truth. And that's hard for our brains. It's hard for my brain to wrap around this because... To be honest with you, I don't want to, right? Not, like, I don't want to think about people this way. But what Christ is saying is, people who don't know him, they can't accept the truth because it is the truth. And what Jesus is describing here in such great detail is unbelief. This is the result of the spiritual slavery to sin. This is what it means to be bound by sin as an unbeliever, and if there are any unbelievers here this morning, this describes you. You cannot accept the truth precisely because it is the truth. And if you're a believer here this morning, this describes you before your salvation. This is actually the spiritual state of every person who has ever been conceived from the moment of conception. They have a sin nature, are slaves to sin, bound by sin, Satan as their father. They cannot know or believe the truth because it is the truth. There's a spiritual 
inability here. What hope? What hope does anyone have then? If, if in our natural condition we can't believe the truth because we are like our father Satan, then how can we ever be saved? And what this should do then in this moment is make clear your desperate need for God and your complete inability to save yourself. You need someone to open your spiritually dead eyes. You need someone to free you from your bondage to sin. And since you cannot, you cannot do this yourself, you need someone powerful enough to overcome your hard-hearted spiritual condition. You need someone powerful enough to raise you from spiritual death to spiritual life. Remember from last week, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. What you need is the freedom that only the Son can provide. And Jesus doesn't stop here, however. He tells them they cannot believe him because he is telling the truth. And then he asks if any one of them can accuse him of sin. And nobody can because he is sinless even to the point where they try before his crucifixion. They can't even get two witnesses together who are lying about him to agree on any one thing that he has done or said. And he lived openly for years, performed miracle for years, spoke in front of crowd for years, and nobody can bring a legitimate charge against him. And he's saying, if you cannot do that, then why don't you believe me? There's no legitimate reason for them not to, except for their spiritual inability to do so. They do not hear his words. They, they do not hear the words of God because they are not of God. And what an indictment. Jesus has told them their spiritual father is not God, but is in fact Satan. And just like their father, they're liars. They're murderers, and they cannot hear God's truth because it is the truth. Right? We can feel the tension building in this conversation. So how do they respond? How do they respond to this? Well, they respond in verses 48 through 51. And the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, what do people tend to do in a conversation when they're angry and they no longer have a valid argument? They resort to baseless accusations and name-calling. And they do this, right? What do people do this? They do this in an attempt to tear someone down. Not based on facts, based on emotion, based on anger, based on open hostility, and that's what the crowd does. They accuse Jesus of being a demon-possessed Samaritan. They accuse Jesus of being illegitimate, both physically and spiritually. They say, physically, aren't we right in saying that you are physically a half-breed, not truly purely Jewish, and spiritually, aren't you of Satan, possessed by a demon, have a demon? They have no proof. 
But they say it because they're losing the argument. They don't have anything valid to say back. So this is what they resort to. And how does Jesus respond? He, he simply states that, no, I'm not being controlled by a demon. I don't have a demon. I don't even seek my own glory. But I seek the glory of the Father. Jesus is not concerned with receiving glory from these people. He's like, the Father's going to take care of that. The Father's going to take care of that. Jesus will be glorified whether these people acknowledge him or not. The Father, who glorifies Christ, he sees them, the crowds. He, He knows them and he judges. They may think that they're passing judgment on Christ, but they're actually walking around under God's judgment. That's what's actually going on there. And that's what Jesus is saying. And, and then he comes to this phrase and he says this once again, this truly, truly. And if you remember from last week, whenever you see that, you should stop. You should pause. Jesus says it for emphasis. And what he's saying is what I'm about to say is important. In other words, listen up, pay attention. Jesus says that anyone who keeps his word, will never see death. Anyone who keeps his word will never see death. And this expression, keep his word, it's, it's equivalent to, it's synonymous with what he said back in verse 31. If we remember, uh, when we were back in verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So this expression, keep his word, is synonymous with abide in his word. And we look back at verse 31. What was the result of abiding in his word? It was freedom in Christ. What's the result of keeping his word? Here in verse 51, it's never seeing death. What does he mean by this? He can only mean one thing. He can only mean one thing. He is speaking about spiritual life, eternal life, life everlasting with him. He cannot mean physical death. It would make no sense for him here to mean physical death. Everybody dies physically. We're going to see this is actually a point of confusion with the crowds as they're responding to him. He is saying, children of God have spiritual life. Children of God have spiritual life. And what an amazing truth for every believer here this morning. Those who abide in Jesus' word, those who keep his word, are free from slavery to sin and will experience the joys of eternal life with him. This is a certainty. If you are in Christ, this is a promise. What's the promise? Freedom and life. And how can that not lift your heart? How can that not bring you joy? How can that truth not deepen your affection and love for Christ? Just listen to this glorious truth for your heart. And for my heart this morning, if you are here and you are in Christ, you abide in his word, you keep his words, you are not only free in Jesus, you are not only free from the bondage of sin, but you will never, never experience the possibility of spiritual death. Your physical body may die, but your soul, your spirit will go to be with Christ for all of eternity. And if you are in Christ this morning, there is nothing you did to earn this. 
and there's nothing that you can do for it to be taken away. Just meditate on that truth with me for a moment. Allow yourself to be drowned in it. Allow yourself to be overwhelmed with the reality of it. Allow it in this moment, as you are sitting there meditating, thinking on, dwelling on this truth, to deepen your heart affection for your Savior. Children of God have spiritual life. Well, up to this point, Jesus has developed a picture of two kinds of children with two different fathers, and each child demonstrates who their father is through their actions. Jesus has told the crowd they're not children of God, but they're children of Satan. And as children of Satan, they're liars, they're murderers, they cannot believe the truth. He's made these accusations, but the question is, is this true about them? Will these Jews show the truth of what Jesus is saying? Will these Jews show who their father really is? And and that brings us to this last section of narrative. And by the time we get to the end of this narrative, there will be no doubts. The Jews will leave no doubt as to who their true father is. So I'm going to start in verse 53 and work my way to the end of the chapter. He says, they say to him, are you greater than... Hold on, sorry. Let's start in verse 52. And we're going to work our way from verse 52 down to verse 59. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, initially, the Jews take Jesus' word in a purely physical sense. They're incredulous. Now they know. They say, now we know that you are demon-possessed. He says that those who believe in his words will never see death, yet Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. He died. The prophets actually spoke the very words of God to the people. They died. If Abraham died and the prophets died, how could those who keep Jesus' words never die? The only way for this to be true is if for Jesus to be greater than Abraham, for Jesus to be greater than the prophets. But to these people, that is preposterous. It's preposterous, and their conclusion is it can only be the result of demon possession. And since they don't believe that Jesus is greater than Abraham, or that Jesus is greater than the prophets, they ask, who do you make yourself out to be? This isn't a a question of identity. (laughs) It is more a statement like, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to make yourself out to be greater than Abraham and greater than the prophets? 
And Jesus says once again, I don't seek my own glory, but only the glory of the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. Jesus said, I'm not a liar. I know that God, I speak the truth, I keep God's words, I only do what is pleasing to the Father. And then he comes back to this statement about Abraham in verse 36. He says, not only does the Father glorify the Son, but Abraham himself rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad, and this is a, an interesting expression. It has resulted in much debate over the years about what exactly does Jesus mean when he says this. Because Jesus indicates Abraham rejoiced to see my day, whatever that is. He saw it and was glad. So the big debate is, is this something specific? Is this a specific instance in the life of Abraham? Is it something more generic? What could it mean? And there's a range of theories, a long range of theories. He rejoiced at the birth of his son. It was the moment when he was about to sacrifice and, and God brings uh, the ram in the thicket. It's the moment that God makes covenant with Abraham. And there is all kinds of things out there for what people think this could be. But to be clear, this statement seems strange to us, but it actually wouldn't have been so strange to the Jews in Jesus' day. Throughout the centuries, there are actually many rabbis who believed and taught that in Genesis 15, and in Genesis 15, God makes his covenant with Abraham, and that's the splitting of the animals, and Abraham goes into a deep sleep, and God makes his covenant with him. They believe that in that moment, God actually disclosed to him the secrets of the age to come. Some believe that God only told Abraham about the secrets of this world. Either way, though, it was not an uncommon belief that God had given Abraham the powers of foresight. That was not an uncommon belief amongst the Jewish people. What would have really stood out to them was that Jesus didn't say that Abraham rejoiced to see the coming messianic age. What Jesus actually says is that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And in Jesus saying, my day, he's actually connecting himself in the minds of the people with the messianic age that was promised to come. And so I'm just going to say, for our understanding this morning, I'll tell you where I land. I believe that Jesus is saying, Abraham saw the future messianic age fulfilled through the promise of his son Isaac. And he knew this was the vehicle because he had promised him that through him, through his line, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Abraham believed the promises of God, which were of a future son, a future lineage that would bring blessing upon all people. And in that future son, God saw the fulfillment, or sorry, Abraham saw the fulfillment of all of God's promises to him, and he rejoiced. Jesus identifies the ultimate fulfillment of all of Abraham's hopes, all of Abraham's joys with his own person and his own work. And the Jews, still thinking only in terms of the physical, they know that Jesus isn't even the age of seniority in their culture. You know, the priest could retire at age 50, and they say, well, you're not even 50 years old. How could you have possibly seen Abraham in order for Abraham to rejoice in your day? How is, how is that possible? What are you really saying about yourself? And, and we come to this proclamation. And throughout this conversation, up to this point, Jesus has made references to who he really is. He's connected himself in unity with the Father in terms of being sent by the Father. 
He speaks the Father's words. He does the Father's will. He's even said that you're going to die in your sins because you don't believe I am he. But when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And there was some confusion in their minds about exactly what that meant. Well, guess what? He takes away any ambiguity, any confusion that they could have possibly said. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Notice, not before Abraham was, I was. Before Abraham was, I am. This is Jesus speaking to his eternity of being when he says this. He is saying that before Abraham, who lived centuries before, Jesus' existence went on. One reference put it this way. The the statement implies a pre-existence. And is possible because the eye of Jesus is one with the eye of the divine Logos. In this statement, Jesus forms the basis of the promise of salvation to God's people. This is why Jesus can give true freedom. This is why Jesus can give life that overcomes death. Because he is the pre-existent, eternal I am. He is greater than Abraham. He is greater than the prophets. He is greater than anything else in all of creation or in all of history. He is the I am. And the Jews in this moment, they understand exactly what Jesus is saying. In their eyes, this is blasphemy of the highest order. This is the kind of statement that they had been trying to incite him to make. They wanted him to say something that in their eyes would justify their killing him. And they are so enraged by this, his statement. They don't go through legal channels. They don't go through some legal process to determine his guilt. This is like the rage we see later in the New Testament as Stephen is proclaiming the truths of God to the Jewish leaders and they get so enraged that they take him out in that moment and they stone him to death. They are angry and openly hostile to God and to his word. They're in the temple area while it's still under construction and they pick up stones that would have been there and they have murder in their heart and they're intending to kill him. But because it wasn't time for Jesus to be glorified, he walked out from them. This is a miracle, right? He's God. It it wasn't his time. It wasn't the, the moment for him to bear the sins of all of humanity upon himself on the cross. So he miraculously is hidden from them and he walks out from them. And in this moment, as the people are grabbing stones, in response to what Jesus has declared about himself, they are demonstrating. They are demonstrating exactly what Jesus had just said about them. He had told them they were of their father, Satan. And just like their father, they were liars and murderers who were incapable of believing the truth. And they showed that what Jesus said about them was true. I don't know about you, but what a narrative. I hope you can feel the tension that is created this morning, even in this conversation. 
Listen, Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, he says this in verses 49 through 53, Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and word that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. There will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Why is it? It's because Jesus brings the truth. He's the embodiment of the truth. Everything that he says, everything that he does is truth from the Father. And as we've seen this morning, there are those who cannot believe the truth. And there are those who can. There are those who hear the truth and respond like Abraham. They hear it, they believe it, they put their trust in it, they obey it. And so doing, they demonstrate that they are children of God. And then there are those who hear the truth Reject it because it is the truth and continue down the path that is set for them by their father, Satan. There is no in-between. There are only two options. Either God is your father or Satan is. That is the truth, and this isn't the truth from Darren. This is the truth from the lips of Christ and his own word. So then as we come to the end of chapter 8 of John's gospel, I hope we are left with this obvious question. This obvious question that we must ask ourselves. The question is, who is my father? Or that I would ask, who is your father? Is your father Satan? Children of Satan are liars, murderers, openly hostile to Christ and the things of God. They may hear the truth with their ears, but they don't believe it. They don't place their trust in it. They don't obey it. And ultimately, they will show themselves to be children of their father. Where's your father God? Children of God love Christ. They they love Jesus simply because he is Jesus. He is God. He is the one that has set them free from the bondage of sin. He's the one who has secured for them eternal life. And he has done this in spite of the fact that nobody deserves it. He has done it out of his own love and mercy and grace for his own purposes to glorify himself. And it's because of this and nothing else that his children love him. And the only loving response to this is obedience to his words. So which of those two descriptions applies to you? Are you a child of God? Or are you a child of Satan? If you're here this morning and After hearing a sermon like this, you would honestly say that God is not your father. And I want to speak to you for a moment. The amazing truth is that although God is not your father, he can be. You are a slave to sin who cannot free yourself. You are spiritually dead with no way to bring yourself to spiritual life. You you need a rescuer. You need a redeemer. You need someone who can perform a miracle in your life and bring you from life to death. And the only one that can do that is Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus took that punishment upon himself. And this day, this moment, right now, Jesus offers you salvation and freedom and spiritual life in him. Repent of your sins. 
Confess them to him. Turn from them. Place your trust in Christ alone. And if you do that, the promise of Scripture is gloriously clear. Your chains will be broken. Your bonds will be removed. You will be set free. And you will come to spiritual life. You will be a child of God. And what could be more glorious than that? Today. Today is the day of salvation. And if you're here this morning and you are a child of God, then I'm going to leave you with a little bit of self-evaluation. I'm going to read some questions as we close. And if you want to follow along, I printed them on the back of your notes. So if everyone got notes, if you didn't, please get them on the way out. On the back there, there's a list of questions, some self-heart reflection evaluation. Just listen. I'm just going to read through them and, and encourage you to, to do this sometime this week. How consistent, am, and, uh, how consistent am I in spending time in God's word in order to know more about him? How consistent am I in spending time thinking on God's word in order to stir my heart affection for him? How consistent am I in spending time praying God's word in order to align my desires with his? How consistent am I in speaking with other Christians about God's word in order to encourage one another in our love for God? How consistent am I in sharing God's word with unbelievers? And, and Christ made it clear, the expression of love for Christ is obedience to him. In 1 John, John makes it clear that his commands are not burdensome. So these last set of questions have to do with that. Which commands in particular do I think, do I think are burdensome or unreasonable or too hard to obey? What is the reason I think those commands are too much for me to obey? What am I afraid will happen if I obey these commands? What would it actually look like for me to obey this particular command of God? And what steps am I going to take this week? Or what step even am I going to take this week to grow in my obedience to him? Remember, our actions reveal our Father. Grow in your love for Christ. Grow in your obedience to Christ. In doing so, show everyone around you, everyone who comes in contact with you, everyone that you interact with, show them who your Father really is.